If you have your Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43, that's where we're going to be today. In 1994, the unimaginable happened in the country of Rwanda. After decades of escalating conflict between two different tribal groups, the president of Rwanda was assassinated, which was like a spark lighting a fire. And over the next three months, about 100 days, one of the most devastating genocides that the world has ever seen took place. A little over three months, a million Rwandans were killed in a country of around seven million people. This time last year, I had the privilege of going to Rwanda, my very first trip to Africa. A few of us went and got to spend some time with some local pastors there, and I I think we learned more from them than we helped them, but we got to study God's word together. And it was so powerful getting to know these men and women and hear about their lives and lean in. A few months ago, I got to go back. And this was even better because we were building on relationships we had already began. And I want to show you a picture of one of those leaders. His name is Jean-Baptiste. Incredibly kind. A really gifted worship leader as well as a teacher, super smart. Of of all the students, he was one of the the brightest, father of four. And at one point, he pulled me and Gene, adult ministry pastor here at GFC, pulled us aside and he began to share more of his story. And he, he shared how during the genocide, four of his siblings and his mother were killed. And he went on to talk about how he felt God called him into ministry. But just just hearing that, it just was devastating. Towards the end of our time, we went to the genocide memorial in Kigali. And it was incredibly sobering. I don't know if you've ever gotten the chance to go see something like that, the Holocaust Museum. But I found myself, just, just seeing pictures of what happened in Rwanda, hearing stories, I felt nauseous. I had to get away from it at one point. But I I think the hardest part for me was realizing that all of these men and women that we had spent time with in Rwanda, they all lived through it. They were kids. And one of the things that we learned at the museum is that 70% of kids in Rwanda lost a family member during the genocide. 90% of kids who were interviewed, 90% said that they thought they were going to die personally. And so, you know, here's Jean Baptiste having his experiences and trying to grow and learn. I mean, it's clear this this country is going to be healing for a long time. There is generational trauma that has happened. And yet, God's goodness is breaking through. God is at work in and through these men and women. But what does it look like in a world like that to follow Jesus. I mean, that experience is hard to even talk about of what happened in Rwanda in 1994. That is far more extreme than most of us, Lord willing, will ever experience. But it's indicative of the kind of world we live in. We live in a world of enemies. I mean, if you you had to sum up our world today in one word, you know, the, the right word might be conflict. We just live in a world where there's constant conflict. Not all of it's violent. A lot of it's verbal, 
emotional, but it, it, it's conflict. What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world like that? A world of enemies. For Jean Baptiste, what does this mean? You know, when Jesus was walking and doing his ministry on the earth, um, there was conflict at the time. Israel had a lot of enemies. When, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at in a moment, Israel was under Roman oppression. And they had been under the thumb of Roman rule for centuries. And before Rome, it was Greece. And before Greece, it was Persia. Before Persia, it was Babylon. Before Babylon, it was Assyria. It had been almost a thousand years since they had their own independent kingdom. And so when Jesus said what we're going to look at today, Israel had enemies. And in, in that kind of a culture, again, just imagine it, and into our culture today, our world today, Jesus says something explosive. Let's just look at the words of Jesus. He, he says this, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this statement from Jesus was an earthquake. The world has never been the same since he said this. Now, that sounds dramatic, but I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, he, he looked at the moral and ethical teachings of different cultures going back millennia, and he, he, he looked at, I'll just give you a list of some of them. He looked at Jewish, Hindu, Norse, Babylonian, Egyptian, Aboriginal, Chinese, Greek, Roman, and Anglo-Saxon cultures, and he, he looked at all of the overlapping moral principles because many of them, most of them, have, the sim, have similar kinds of ethical principles. But no empire, no traditional culture ever said anything like this. Nobody said this. Love your enemies. This was radical. This was new. Sometimes it does, it's not as explosive for us because we, you know, we weren't there. But again, Jesus, he says, love your enemies. Enemies, and, and, and we know that it was radical at the time because Jesus sums up for us the, the, the current belief and practice in Israel at that time. Look at verse 43. Jesus, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So it had been taught, it was being taught at that time, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does that come from? Well, in Leviticus 19 the Israelites were commanded to love their neighbor, their fellow Israelite. But what you'll find if you look at Exodus 19 is there is no reference to hating your enemy, none. But what had happened is religious teachers over the years, they interpreted Leviticus 19 to say, we are to love our neighbor and only our neighbor. In other words, if somebody is not a fellow Israelite, if they're an outsider, it does not matter how you treat them. In fact, you can hate them. And so in a culture filled with conflict, that's exactly what they did. And they taught, they taught people, hate your enemy, hate them. Archaeologists have found things um, like this statement that was etched. This is from a monastic community living by the Dead Sea during the time of Jesus and this was a saying that they, 
they spoke. It, it was love the brother, hate the outsider. And that's how enemy really was defined in the mind of an Israelite. It was an outsider. It was anybody who's not my neighbor. So pick your, you know, I mean, they had a bunch to choose from. You had Romans, you had Samaritans, you had people like tax collectors that they viewed as traitors um, to Israel. And in that culture, he says, love your enemies. Now, we have enemies too. We, we have enemies. Now, part of the challenge with this text is helping us see that because Many of us, we read Jesus' words here and we think, I don't have any enemies. I mean, I don't have any active family feuds going on. I don't, I don't have seething resentment towards anybody, so I'm off the hook, right? But I believe we have just as many enemies today. It just looks different. It's more subtle. We have just as many enemies. You know, David Finch he, he describes, he's an author, and he, he describes our current social dynamic in America. And he uses this phrase, the enemy-making machine. And this is a powerful idea. He says, this is what's going on in our culture. We live and breathe this. And, and here's how the enemy-making machine works. Number one, we define ourselves via a position. Okay, so it might be Republican or Democrat or pro-life or gun control or a million other examples. We define ourselves via a position. Number two, in doing so, we define ourselves against someone who is an other via our position. So there's a clear we and there's a clear they. And then number three, our motivations and desires get aligned with our position. So what makes us glad what makes us sad, our sorrows get, get formed around the day-to-day success of our position. Are we gaining ground? Are we losing ground? And then number four, and this is important, we defend our position at all costs and feel justified in doing so. And that's really key. The prospect of the other, whoever the other is, taking away our power or interrupting our progress it's unacceptable. And so we have to do whatever we can to stop it. It's the enemy-making machine. Now, does this not describe the past few years in our culture today? Does this not describe our current cultural moment? I think this is so profound. Does this idea, does this not summarize political leaders and, and news media outlet, outlets. I mean, listen, the way that, that we are communicated with by leaders, and again, I'm speaking very generally, but by news media, um, it's a very specific way. It's here's what's going to happen if they blank. So if they get in power, take control, whatever. They're, they're going to take away your rights. They're gonna stop progress, destroy our country, whatever. And then the second piece is, we have to keep that from happening by standing up, protesting. Usually it's voting for somebody. And all of this is based on fear. But nothing unifies like a common enemy. And so again, this is how people communicate with us. 
I convince you you're being threatened. Maybe you didn't even know that you're in danger, but, but you are in danger, and now you know. And then I say you can keep that awful, horrible future from happening by doing, again, fill in the blank. This is the world we live in. And so when Jesus says to us, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, these words are incredibly relevant for us. In other words, we have heard this. GFCers, we have heard this. And it's not verbatim. It's not like somebody stands up and says it, but we've heard it every day. Love your neighbor and hate blank. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Let me just kind of start off a little lighter. We have heard it said here in East Tennessee, love your fellow Vols and hate Alabama fans. <laughs> we, we actually have Alabama fans in our church, which shows you you can never fall too far beyond the grace of God. That, <laughs> you know, everybody's welcome. Grace Fellowship Church. I have heard it said growing up as a Cowboys fan, and I still hear it as a Dallas Cowboys fan, love your neighbor and hate Eagles fans. Hate them. Again, we actually have Eagles fans here. One, one of them wore a Philadelphia Eagles sweat, sweater to Christmas Eve. To our, how, I thought, so disrespectful. I, I, can't, I can't believe they would do that. Growing up through the Cold War... Many of you, you heard, love your neighbor and hate the Russians. And maybe even still, the Olympics are on and you see Russia on the screen and you want them to do bad because it's inside of you. If you're a conservative, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate those liberals, hate Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate Republicans. Conservatives, some of you in the room, you've heard this message. Love your neighbor and hate those millennials. Millennial bashing is great sport among older people. And it goes the other way too. Some of us have heard, love your neighbor and hate those older generations who are stuck in the mud and don't understand you. And the list goes on and on and on. We are taught to hate people who are different from us in their beliefs, in their values, and how they look. So who have you been taught to hate today? Who are your enemies? And maybe honestly today, you do not have any. There is no one, as far as you know your own heart, there is no one that you have any kind of animosity, hostility towards. And I would say to you, that's great. I mean, that is what Jesus calls us to. But let me ask you this question. Who has hostility towards you? Jesus didn't have hostility towards anyone, but he had enemies because there were people hostile towards him. I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard, he says, few of us manage to go through life without collecting a group of individuals who would not be sorry to learn that we have died. Some of us, that list is shorter. Some of it's some of us, it's longer. Who is hostile towards you? 
Or who do you have feelings of animosity towards? Those are your enemies. And we all have them. We all do. And what does Jesus say to you and I in our cultural moment, in our us versus them world, in the way we think? He says this again, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is intense, isn't it? I'm trying to help us feel the weight of it. It's more demanding than you even think. It's worse than you think. Because when we hear this, we hear it through our interpretive lens of what it means to love other people. Love is not a helpful word in the English language. It's not help. I mean, that's why there's four words for love in Greek. Because in English, I can say, I love pizza and I love hiking and I love my children. And I mean very different things. Hopefully, I mean very different things when I say that. So most of the time, just the way we use the word love is it's referring primarily to feelings that happen to us. I realized I just love to go hiking. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not saying to generate warm fuzzies towards people who are hostile to you. It's not what he's saying. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for love is it's the word agapao, and it means to sacrificially seek the good of another. And it's modeled in the life and death of Jesus. The, the word he uses, it is the word for sacrificially seeking the good of the other. And this is why in Luke 6, kind of the parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus equates loving your enemies with doing good. And as an expression of that, back to our text, love your enemies as an expression of that, we are to pray for those who persecute us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that, praying for those who persecute you, he calls that the, the supreme command. It's, it's the summit of Christian love. Because when we do this, I mean, understand, it's not just that you want to do good for them. It's that you are coming before God who has the power to give infinite blessings and you are asking, pleading, you're interceding on your enemy's behalf to God saying, please bless them. This is what we're called to do. Now, why do this? This sounds really miserable and difficult to love my enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why should I do it? Well, Jesus goes on in the text to talk about the why. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Do this so you bear resemblance to your heavenly father because this is what he's like. Isn't that powerful? Of all of the different commands we're given, Jesus says, this one, you look like your dad when you do this. And to demonstrate what God is like, Jesus looks at the weather patterns, looks at meteorology. Jesus is so brilliant. Look at this. He says, for he, for God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, I want you to notice two things. First, notice, Jesus says that God blesses both the good and the evil. 
It's an agrarian society. Rain and sunshine are incredible, tangible, essential blessings. And, And Jesus says that God just divvies it out to both the evil and the good. And here's what that means. Number two, it is not always obvious to us which is which. It's part of what Jesus is saying here. You can't look at a person's crops or their field or today, you can't look at somebody's bank account and know if they're good or if they're evil. There's actually a whole book of the Bible deconstructing that kind of theology. It's the book of Job. God blesses the good and the evil. And so we don't always know who is who. Now, it seems obvious to us, again, because in our us versus them culture, we have been taught we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Do you, do you notice that, by the way, that nobody ever divides people up into good and evil and says, we're the evil ones? Nobody ever does that. And everybody on both sides, they always think they're the good ones. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying, he, he, he is not saying that there's no such thing as good and evil. There is. But his point is, we cannot be confident that we always know which is which. And here's the truth. And th- this is what society does not want you to know, okay? Because there's way less money to be made if you adopt this idea. Here's the, here's the truth. When it comes to good and evil, we all have both inside of us. My, my kids and I watch movies, and when they're younger, even still at times, they'll say, Dad, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Most of the time, movies make it obvious. Sometimes they don't, and so it's, hey, Dad, is he a good guy or a bad guy? And usually there's an answer, right? But that kind of thinking is necessary for kids as they're developing, but carrying that into adulthood, you can't do that. Why? Because it's not that simple. It's not binary, good or evil. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a prisoner who who lived in the Gulag and the Soviet Union. I mean, talk about having enemies. This is what he said. This is so powerful. I think this can really transform the way you view your enemies if you get what he's saying. He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line separating good and evil does not cut through the political aisle. It doesn't cut through different neighborhoods. Every human being. And when we realize that, we can begin to have compassion on the people we view as our enemies. Because we realize we could be in their shoes and we are no better than them. You see, you can't love people that you feel superior to. Not not truly. And this is why, again, getting to know individual people And hearing actual stories is so important, especially the stories of the people that we disagree with. We say, I don't know how you could be a Christian and do blank. What is the blank for you? 
Those people, those are the people we need to get to know and hear their stories. There's a, a novel called All Quiet on the Western Front. Some of you might have had to read it in school. Um, in that, there, there's a soldier named Paul Bomber who comes to this realization. I want to share, it's a little long, but his quote, because this is so powerful. He's speaking to an enemy in this book. And he says, comrade, I do not want to kill you. You were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind. It was that abstraction that I stabbed. But now, for the first time, I see that you are a man like me. I thought before, I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now, I see your life and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade, how could you be my enemy? What happened to Paul Bomber in the story? What happened is his enemy no longer was just an idea or a label or a category, but a person. And it changed the way he saw them. It changed the way he loved them. You see, we, gosh, we're so guilty of this. Whenever we put people into these camps, label them good, bad, whatever, we are dehumanizing people because we're stripping away all the complexity of somebody who has beauty and brokenness in them, who's made in the image of God. We're, we're, we're moving all of that, and we're just focusing on one piece of who they are. It's dehumanizing. But when we do it, we also dehumanize ourselves. And you need to hear that today, too. Hate is corrosive to the soul. I love what Booker T. Washington said. You talk about somebody who had a reason to hate. He had a reason to have enemies. He was born into slavery. He experienced racism throughout his life. But Booker T. Washington, he said this. He said, I am resolved that I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. Again, hate is damaging to your own soul. And it's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to love our enemies. And it's radical. And Jesus knows that it is radical. And that it's totally unique. Which is why he says what he does in the next verse. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, the key word, interpretively, in this verse is the word more. It's the Greek word perisos, and it means above and beyond. It means extraordinary. Jesus is saying, if you love the people who love you, how are you extraordinary? How are you any different? Even tax collectors, they, they hated tax collectors. Even tax collectors do that. One way of understanding what Jesus is saying is this, that Responding to love with evil, that's the way of the wicked, okay? That's disturbing. None of us, most of us don't do that. But responding to love with love, Jesus says that's the way of the world. This is how the world is. But responding to evil with love, that's the way of Jesus. And it is utterly unique. It was then, it is now. And this is incredibly difficult, but Jesus does not dilute the force of what he's asking. 
And any take on this text or the Sermon on the Mount that does that, I think, gets it wrong. Jesus does not lower the bar. Look at the next verse. Look at what Jesus says. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, at first glance, this seems super unattainable, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us just want to pack it in and go to lunch now and might as well walk away? I mean, what's the point? I'm not going to be able to be like God be perfect. Well, that, that word for perfect, it also means complete or mature. And I think that's what Jesus is after. Now, what's the context? This is so important. You just take this verse and you wave it around in the air and you pull it, you know, you can make, take it to mean all kinds of things. What's the context? This is in the context of Jesus talking about love. So what Jesus is saying, that he's saying as his followers, the call the invitation, the demand even of us is to pursue love and that loving our enemies, that is what we're aiming for. We must be mature in love and, and the way to be mature in love is by loving your enemies. It's, it, Jesus is saying in a sense, this is like a PhD in Christian growth and discipleship and spiritual formation. But when you do this, you are being like God. Now, why is this the mark? Why is this the PhD for spiritual growth? I think that it's that way because there's no self-interest in loving enemies. There's none. There's nothing to gain. I mean, there, there can be self-interest in you loving your coworkers and your neighbors and even your family members and your friends. There's no self-interest in loving your enemies. And this is what Jesus says, pursue this. We never fully arrive, but pursue this. And once again, I want you to see, he anchors this command in the nature and character of God. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you love people like this, the people that in the eyes of the world you have no business loving, it doesn't make sense. When you do that, you're being like God because his heart is for people that you view as your enemies. This is what God's like. And nowhere do we see God like this as clearly as we do when we look at the cross. And Paul, the apostle Paul, he, he reflects back on the cross and this is what he says in Romans 5. He says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say that while we were enemies, we were enemies, what? We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How did God treat his enemies? He died for them. Charles Allen was a preacher and an author in the 20th century. And, and once he preached a sermon to his church about the cross, and what he told them was, he said, using your mental television, you can go back and you can imagine what it was like in the Garden of Gethsemane to see Jesus. Can you picture Jesus? Do you see him on his knees? Do you see him in his anxiety? And do, do you see him sweating drops of blood? Do you see the sorrow as his friends are asleep. And then he went on to describe in vivid detail how the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and all of his friends deserted him, all of them. And then he went on and he painted the, the scene of the trial 
where Jesus was tried unfairly and sentenced to death on a cross. But before that, he was humiliated. He was stripped and beaten. And then he was lifted up on a cross for all to see his disfigured form. And then he said this to his church, he said, and I say to us today, hold on, Jesus is about to speak. And he, and he encouraged his church to lean forward, to strain their ears across the centuries because Jesus, for 45 minutes, he described all this, this all happened, but he's about to speak. And, and we all lean forward, what is he gonna say? Jesus, he says, Father, forgive them. How did God treat you when you were his enemy? That's how. Father, forgive them. And when you and I truly are contemplating that, it melts our hearts to the degree that we can look into the eyes of people that we view as our enemies and we genuinely seek to love them. But this is the only way. How do you make your heart into the kind of heart that loves your enemies? I don't know. I mean, none of us, you, you can't even do this to your own heart. The only way is for the love of God to get so deep inside of you that you understand, again, I was God's enemy and he died for me. And your heart becomes more and more the kind of heart that, that models the heart of God for that other person. So where does this leave us today? Where, where does the image of the cross leave us when it comes to loving our enemies? I'll tell you this. This leaves us without excuse. That's where it leaves us. That there is no one in your life so unlovable that you cannot, that you should not, by God's grace and through his spirit, try to move towards loving them. Because it's not just what Jesus called us to do, it's what he modeled. So what does that look like? How do we move towards applying this? On your way in, you should have gotten a note card, and I wanna invite you to take that out. And if you didn't get a note card, it's okay, grab a piece of paper, something you can get your hands on, but this is what I wanna invite you to do. As one way to move towards this, I want to invite you to write the name of an enemy on that card. And it's better if it's an individual, not a group. Um, I wouldn't advise writing the name of the person next to you. Do that at, at your own risk. But I want you to write the name of a person, and if you don't have hostility towards anyone, again, that's great. Who has hostility towards you? In other words, whose card are you on? And what I want to invite you to do is to take that card and put it somewhere where you're gonna see it, and every day this week, pray for that person, for God to bless them, not for God to judge them. Pray for God to bless them. And, and all of us who are doing this, you you don't feel anything warm and fuzzy towards that person. I know that. Do it anyway. <laughs> because Jesus said to do it. And 
Because as we do this, what happens is love grows inside of us. You see, praying for our enemies is not just an expression of love for them. It's a means by which love grows inside of us. I love what John John Stott says. He says, it's impossible to pray for people without loving them. And it's impossible to go on praying for them without discovering that our love for them grows and matures. So let me invite you every day this week. Take out the card. It could be short, but God, I pray you would bless, truly bless this person. What would it look like for you to do that this week as you try to follow Jesus with this part of your life? You know, when the genocide happened in 1994, a man named John Rukyahana survived, but the majority of his family members did not. But he was a Christian and a pastor, and his faith compelled him to go into Rwanda and to help rebuild society. And so he helped build schools and and churches. But one of the most powerful things that Rukyahana ever did was he, he created an organization that provided opportunities for victims and perpetrators to meet together. Think about that for a moment. For victims and perpetrators to meet together to admit their crimes, to ask for forgiveness, and to take steps towards restoration and healing. Truly remarkable. And in 2009, he was given the William Wilberforce Award, which is given every year to a distinguished Christian leader who confronts societal injustice and helps move people towards peace and reconciliation. But this is what he shared at his ceremony, and this is where I want to leave us today through all that he'd been through, when he reflected back on what gave him the strength to love his enemies, because that's what he did. This is what he said. He said, we must forgive like Jesus did while he was on the cross. And then he says, without God, I would hate such killers with all of my heart. But with God, I can truly say that I love them. Men and women, without God, most of us have no reason to love some of the people that are on your cards right now. But with God, we can say, truly, the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say that we love them. May it be so. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come before you, and this is a heavy call to love not just our family and our neighbors and friends, but to love our enemies. And Lord, I'm aware right now of even just the heaviness of putting a name down for for some in the room and online. And God, I just pray that you would meet all of us in this, right where we are, and help us by your grace to to do this in, in obedience to Jesus, to pray for those people. God, would you help our hearts to become the kind of hearts who genuinely, truly seek the good of people that we should have no business loving. God, thank you that you loved us while we were enemies and you reconciled us through the death of Jesus. And so we just respond to you now. We worship you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.